everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord, the comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekwort, the best online and unusual source for comic books news, reviews and criticism. Buy their books, read their articles, uh, buy their movies. For example, shout out to James Kelly who just wrapped up a two-part retrospective on the X-Men film franchise and recently started a review of Frank Miller's legendary Daredevil saga. Good for him, good mm-hmm. for us. We are also, I say we, Seekwort is also now on Patreon. Support smart criticism in comics. It's the next step in legitimizing this thing we love as a form of art. Also, we should probably introduce ourselves. Probably. In case, in case that's the first yeah. episode people First hear. give us money, then we'll tell you who we are. Yes, I am the legendary Tom Shapira, and with me... Hello, Sean Smash Puny Comics. Yes, he does. It's one of those days. <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome to 2015, everyone. Uh, we took a week off. It's Well-deserved week off. Well-deserved. New year, new comics... New news. Yeah, we'll start with the news. Let's start with the late breaking news. This was just announced yesterday. Um, Marvel has announced the final issues of Avengers and New Avengers. Hickman's run, not the actual end of all Avengers forever. Oh, you never know with them. I'm not giving them credit for No, because it's Marvel. <laughs> Whenever they announce, you know, the end of... It's like, the end of the Uncanny X-Men, and then a month later, Uncanny X-Men, number yeah, one. Yeah, that's true, actually. They're rebooting Uncanny Avengers. So. But anyway, it is the end of Jonathan Hickman's run. Oh, well. Well, you're not a big fan of Hickman. Listen, as we're recording this, it's nine degrees outside. Yes. Now, I realize that people who are, like, in New York or London are shaking their fists at us in envy when I say it's only nine degrees. But that is how cold Hickman's writing leaves me. Uh, I've tried. I really have. I tried to read his work, and I always feel that he has ambition, but not depth. And when you blow up Earth 50 times in a row, it loses all dramatic effect. And I don't even know what's happening in, in Avengers anymore. Like, there's something about universes and... and Incursing into other Earths. <laughs> I started off really as a big fan of Hickman, but it was because of his short-term miniseries, uh, Nightly News, which blew up onto the scene like yeah. nothing else at the time. But when I look at his longer form work, like Manhattan Projects and Avengers and New Avengers and Fantastic Four, you start to see the problems because he's he's so intended on, you know, cramming everything in and there's a lot of stuff going on yeah. in Hickman comics that it almost feels like a summation of good ideas rather than the story yeah. of the good ideas. Because there was a point, I was reading his first 10 issues of Fantastic Four and every issue ended with, oh, and these are the things that happened after the story ended as plot points bulletin. Yeah. And I'm and like, the weird thing that's, is, the, that's the plot of four issues. You just crammed there in one page. And the weird thing is, Marvel clearly has faith in Jonathan Hickman as a writer because they keep giving him like well, these huge tentpole events. Well, he's doing Secret Wars. Yeah. Well, so you would he assume... Is, he is well-liked. Right. So unlike, I don't know unlike, why, why he would feel that he has to rush towards the end well, every time. Yeah. Well, Hickman's writing recently always feel like it's rushing towards something. I was reading the recent, the latest uh, arc of uh, Manan Projects. I'm reading it by trades, mm-hmm. and it really was like, it, in five issues, they've been like for five years of real time yeah. of plot development. And some writers can make that work, like ultra compression. Some writers can't, and I yeah. feel like with Hickman, he always skips the beats that we need to have as readers. He yeah, always... I'm, I'm kind of afraid that Hickman is reaching the bandit stage where it's. The writer that you really liked when he was indie, and then when he mm-hmm. became big time and started writing all these projects together, yeah. you realize that he really had only one major trick up his sleeve, exactly. and he's keep on pulling it the same. Like you said, he's keep on pulling the same bunny over and over again. All right. Or maybe that he's overworked. This guy's writing three uh, 
regular uh, series for Image. Well, two and a half. Right. Well, Manhattan Projects is like being rebooted. But it's re- it took two months off. That's it. Yeah. And the East of West and the, the recently announced The Dying of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And he's doing Avengers and New Avengers and all the preparations for Secret Wars. Maybe he's overworked. He's not Charles Soleil. You know, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta yeah. pace yourself. So I'm listen. I'm happy to be rid of him. Not because I was reading Avengers and I felt that he was doing horrible things, but because, like Bendis, he's the sort of writer where once he sits his ass down on a book, there's no like if you don't get it, there's no point getting into it. And now that he's off it, maybe someone else will come along who can actually give it to Alice Scott. He's you know, take him off Secret Avengers because Secret Avengers is fine. But I'm thinking like, what if if he had the keys to the franchise? I'm I'm kind of worried because whoever uh, you know has a lock on Avengers these days sort of sets the tone for the whole Marvel universe. Right. So it might as well be someone good. But I really like Alice Scott. I don't want him setting a tone. You know, I think give it give it to someone classic again. Mark Wade Avengers. But this why not? This is what has always frustrated me about Marvel ever since the Bill Jemis era, really. When they both A and DC, by the way, this is not like something that's specific to Marvel. They have a tendency to appoint certain writers as architects, right? As the people who decide the overall feel and and flow of the universe and like how the big stories will unfold over time. And they always give these positions to the worst possible people. Marvel for a long time was dictated and I guess you could make the argument that it is still being dictated by Brian Bendis, who quite frankly doesn't have what it takes to run a universe. You know, and you can see it very clearly in the work that he produces. And when Mark Miller was was doing uh, uh the ultimate line you know, you could t- uh, the ultimate line looks the way it does now because it didn't have someone like Brubaker, like I think Brian the, Vaughn I think the ultimate with line, vision. I think the ultimate line looks like it does right now because of Jeff Loeb. Ultimatum did it. Well, there's another architect, yeah. right? There's another person that they gave power to who didn't deserve it. And DC was the same thing. Like, they, they Jeff, have, the Jeff, Jeff Johns. Johns yeah. You know, Jeff Johns' era was, has been parodied so often as being like, oh, look, another guy just got his arm ripped off. Look, another eight-year-old just ended up dead. Yay! And and leading into the new fifty-two, which is now, of course, turning into convergence, and who knows what happens after that. It, they always put these people who are wrong for the job. And just once, just once, I would like someone to write an event comic who actually has the scope and the the depth and the ability to actually plan ahead more than three months to do a, a proper event. Why isn't Peter David doing this? This is the sort of thing Peter David I don't do. think Peter David would, would he doesn't want, want it. Write, uh, no, he wouldn't want it because you know it's a huge job and quite frankly he's past his prime. But like he is the sort of person. No, I think he would hate it because it. he remembers what people in events did to his writing. He, he <laughs> well, was like I don't want to touch other people's like, writing. No, but like now it's my turn to tell y'all what you're gonna do. Yeah, that but, would be. But Dennis is gonna simply ignore him. That's fine. You, you know, David is gonna do the event where like all the X Men are dead, and Brian Bendis is like, in my next X Men issues, all yeah. the X Men are still alive. That is, now, like, I have to wonder if the problem is simply that Bendis doesn't play well with others. Because I can't think of situations in which other writers were able to impose their status quo on him. It's always the other way around. And well, a lot, not a lot of people tried. And I don't know. I just think like yes, it is a valid position. Like you do need someone to be a quote unquote showrunner. Marvel and DC love comparing themselves to, t- to the TV medium, right? We have seasons and I don't, showrunners. I don't, I don't think you have to have showrunners. What I want it is, helps. 
on a conceptual level. You don't have to dictate content for people's books. But if you're saying like, okay, in 2015, the Inhumans are going to declare war on planet Earth, and this, this this isn't going to happen, and let the writers figure out how to handle that. That's fine. But damn it, it has to be dictated to by people who have vision and don't repeat the same thing over and over again. I think think the major problem is that we think of a lot of of these things as bad planning, but I don't think there's actually any planning because Peter David had that thing about, oh, I learned about these events as they were happening. I was opening, I was writing Siren and X Factor and I was opening a book and, oh, her father is dead and nobody told me about it because nobody knew. The argument that the the reason that that happens is and Peter David isn't alone, but Peter David belongs to a certain group, and I hate saying this because I, I admire Peter David tremendously, but he belongs to a group of writers who Marvel Editorial do not have the highest esteem for. Chris Claremont is the same way, right? Claremont is constantly being one-upped by other writers and has to change, and you know, good for him for playing along, because at least this way he gets work. Does but he actually write anything? He was writing Nightcrawler, and it's been oh, cancelled. Right. But like, you know... Again, like, to Marvel's credit, they always find something for him to do. No, I think he has, like, an exclusive contract where he gets money anyway. He, he gets might money as well. To, yeah. Listen, he, he still has fans. I, I don't gravitate towards his writing anymore because, you know, the styles have changed over time. But he should keep working. But again, like, so people like Claremont and David are always finding out, like, they're always being imposed upon, and they seem to play along with it because that's what they have. But, you, you know, Marvel have creative writing summits. They have group meetings in which they sit down and presumably dictate how all these things are going to unfold. Like, I wish that they would just once give it to somebody who is capable of coming up with new ideas. Because Bendis, I mean, you said it, and you're absolutely right. Bendis is always reaching for the same damn tricks. It's the same pattern over and over and over and over again. And here's the thing. When you look at it, most, not only most comic book writers, most artists are like that because... People have, you know, limited scope and interest. Sure. When you become... Some more than others, though. No, I don't think so. I think the problem is that comic book is a medium that consistently demands output. Because a movie maker, a filmmaker, you know, he has a movie once a year, unless you're Takashi Mika and you do three movies a year. A musician has an album once a year. A writer, a big-name writer, can survive on a book every three years or something. And a comic book writer, not an artist, writer, every month, at least... One issue, most yeah. people, three series at the same time. Yes. And you end up becoming overexposed by necessity of the market. Grant Morrison, a, a writer for me that still has a huge breath, but he has done it. But he's a 30... spectrum. Like, okay, Grant Morrison. Yeah. Perfect example, right? Grant Morrison is the person who did Multiversity and Seven Soldiers. He also did Joe the Barbarian and We Three, which are very personal and very powerful stories that have nothing to do with like the big concepts that he that he gravitates towards. So Morrison has like that flexibility. He can do the he doesn't like to do uh the small personal stuff because you know that's not the major part of his work. Although when you think about it like when people talk about his animal man run, they're usually more interested in the family dynamic and that than like the fact that he meets <laughs> Grant Morrison well, at the I, end of the well, run. <laughs> you know, it's like Morrison has flexibility. Uh, um, Brian Vaughn. There's a huge difference between, say, Saga and Runaways. Yeah, but Brian Vaughn wouldn't wouldn't want to run a fictional universe. Uh, yeah, but I, I'm I'm setting that aside. I'm talking more yeah. about like what writers are capable of. So who's capable? The question is who's capable and would want to. 
Because I, I'm not sure who's, in, Scott, who's in Marvel right now. I, because I'm not sure Alex Scott would want to. Because he, he you basically. Know, you know who'd be perfect? Yes. Jason Aaron. Jason Aaron is he a big is idea. He was, he was doing Original Sin. He was doing Original Sin and he was doing Schism too. But these are very specific and limited events. I'm talking about the person who dictates the, the overall feel of the Marvel Universe, I think in many ways is still Brian Bendis. And Bendis just doesn't, you know, he's never had that kind of, of flexibility. You know, uh, you look at the different books that he writes, right? Gamora sounds like Emma Frost, sounds like Kim, Kitty he's Pryde. He's Gamora. Like, He's not writing Guardians of the Galaxy. He's writing Guardians of the Galaxy, but the Gamora spin-off is someone else. No, not the Gamora, but she, she is uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy. Ah, you mean the characters all sounding Yeah, the same. as she... Well, that's his problem, right? And his ideas also are always the same. It's always the damn, like, you know... He's, he's been doing time and, travel stories for the last uh, five years repeatedly. I'm tired. I'm tired of it. Okay, so if we're trying... So this turned into, like, this whole rant, rant about... Let's move into something a bit more pleasant. Yes, this... Well... Yeah, you know, you know what? It's interesting, and I do think that there's good news. So, IDW has acquired Top Shelf Productions. Get out all your regular jokes about League of Extraordinaries and then <laughs> 1980s. Alan Moore just went like, God damn it, not again. Because he has the bad luck of always signing up with imprints that get bought out from under yeah. him. To the extent, I think that like in his contract with the few people who he's still willing to work with, he actually has a stipulation where like if he gets bought out by a company, I'm out of here. So he must be sitting there like, damn it. Although, so I don't think we've ever talked about Top Shelf productions on this podcast and I, I want to say they're not one of the bigger players in the field but they are critically adored and yes. deservedly so for being I think one of the largest sources of the more down to earth personal graphic it's, novels it's the thing slice that, of life yeah, drama it's, Top Shelf is the thing that stands between guys like Image and Dark Horse too. Yeah. The, the even more high minded pretentious stuff like Drawn and Quarterly and yeah. Fantagraphics yeah they're the guys that you can actually... If somebody tells you, I want to read an alternative comics, but I don't want to have people try to tell me, oh, I'm so smart and you're yeah. so stupid for not getting it, mm-hmm. give them a top shelf. These are the people who published Craig Thompson's Blankets, Alex Robinson's Box Office Poison, and Tricked, which are some of my favorite They're doing novels. the reissues of Fort From Hell. Yeah, yeah. Xander Cannon's Heck, uh, Pinocchio Vampire Slayer, The Surrogates, which was uh, adapted into, into a movie, movie. Bruce, uh, Bruce Willis, uh, Rich K- uh, Kozlowski's Three Fingers, just like an entire catalog of amazing graphic novels. Really phenomenal work. And unique also in the sense that I think even Image and boom, which, you know, they pride themselves on being independent and original, they don't do this kind of work. They don't do the the, the personal material. like the, the, the It's a non-genre work. It's, yeah. it's lit-fic comics. Lit-fic, exactly. That nails it perfectly. Now, so IDW has, has purchased them. Now, in terms of what's been revealed so far officially, and I think this is a good sign, they made uh, IDW's, like, their first priority was to say that uh, the publisher for Top Shelf, Chris Saros, is staying on board as editor-in-chief. Uh, their offices aren't moving. Most of their staff are sticking around. So IDW is clearly sending the message that, despite the acquisition, they have no interest in interfering with Top Shelf's output, last, which I think is last, good. Yeah, last year, maybe two years ago, uh, Boom bought Ar- Arkea. Hmm. And I had a lot of fear because one thing Arkea was known for, if nothing else, was its high publishing values because everything that Arkea prints is a beautiful looking hardcover yeah. and boom, 
is for all its 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 good points. They're not that. Yeah, they're they're uh, they they're a very cheap publisher, yeah. I would say, because they're always putting out these small trades that cost a lot of money, and there were rumors at the time about not being created properly. I I love them, like I said yeah. last year. So I was afraid. Oh my god, they're gonna change everything at Arkea. But no, Arkea still running as Arkea yeah. does. Mouse Guard still comes out. Still looks fine as ever. All the hardcovers are still pimp looking, yeah. as, as it were. So if if that's the comparison point, I'm fine with it. Yeah, I am choosing to believe that we did this. And I'll, that okay. We, when I did this, <laughs> yes. In our last podcast, we were doing a roundup of the major publishers, and I, we both sort of casually dismissed IDW as a license factory, which isn't a slight on the quality of their comics, because you have talked up Transformers versus GI Joe more than once, yes. And and uh, uh, we reviewed their Angry Birds comics, and you know, and more than meets the eye, of course. And these are all good comics, fair enough. But you know, the fact remains that the majority of IDW's output in 2014 was made out of comics that were based on properties in other media, whether it was film or television or toy lines. Board games. Board games. I don't know. And I'm imagining Ted Adams, IDW's publisher, listening to the smorgasbord while he's driving home from work and he just stops the car and says, oh my God, we're a licensed publisher. Those guys from the smorgasbord, official podcast of Saquon, the best source for comics news reviews and previews, called my company a licensed factory. I what have I been doing with my life? I and he drove back home and he's like, so who who can we get that will break the image of the licensed factory? Like, which comics company is as far away from licensed material as you can get Ding, 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 top shelf to the rest. Oh, thank God he didn't put Picture Box. Well, <laughs> oh, Picture Box are out of print. He could resurrect Picture Box. That would not be to anybody's benefit when he could have gotten Xenoscope. But no. <laughs> that's not as, that's, well, that is far from IDW. Yeah, but, um, I'm happy about the move. IDW's latest acquisition, uh, before Top Shelf was Thrillbent. Which my reaction to that was mixed because of Thrillbent's yeah. uh, content problems and their scheduling issues. But if this acquisition puts Top Shelf's existing catalog on a higher uh, tier and gets more attention, I'm all for it. Because, again, these people have published some amazing graphic novels. And they absolutely deserve more attention and success for what they've been doing. And if IDW can give them that, good for them. Yep. Okay. Uh, Alright, so this next news item is based on... Uh, sort of rumor slash report. It's devious. We don't usually talk about it, but I did want to bring it up as a talking point because it raises a question that I don't think anybody's been dealing with. So, in the wake of the Sony leak, it came to light that Sony became interested in cutting a deal with Marvel for having Spider-Man appear in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as sort of this joint collaboration. This was uh, apparently brought on by the financial failure of Amazing Spider-Man 2. It did not do as well as Sony was hoping. Now, uh, obviously, ever since those leaked uh, messages came out, what happened was that there has been this ongoing discussion of, you know, is Spider-Man going to be in the MCU? If he is going to appear, who's going to play him? Because Andrew Garfield is out, unfortunately. Uh, who, you know, if he shows up, what role is he going to play? And everybody's really excited about having Spider-Man in the MCU. And my reaction has been sort of, everyone is wondering whether Spider-Man can be introduced to the MCU. My question is, should he be? No. 
That's it. Tom, can you elaborate on that? That's the talking point that I want to bring up. Because okay. Nobody's because... been thinking about... It, it, everyone is concerned with the logistics, which is certainly sort of the interesting thing with all of these... The corporate logistics. The, the most yeah. interesting logistics of them all. Well, you know, in the sense of, you know, ownership and who does this and who does that. But I was speaking as, as a fan of the cinematic universe as a viewer, right? I'm thinking, do I want Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? No. And, and why no. not? The simple, I think the simple reason is that Marvel has turned its weakness into a strength. Yeah. Marvel Cinematic Universe is as good as it, as good as it is right now because it didn't have Spider-Man, because it didn't have the X-Men, because it didn't have the Fantastic Four. If they had these, we would never have gotten Guardians of the Galaxy or Captain America Winter Soldier. When you don't have all the, all the highest means at your, at your possession, you're forced to improvise and you're forced to think smarter. That's why the, the original Star Wars movies are better than the original, the, the later trilogy, because... Duh. <laughs> no, and, and one of the reasons is that George Lucas couldn't do anything he wanted. Yeah. He was forced to work with the limited things he had at hand. That's why The Hobbit is worse than Lord of the Rings, because again, uh, Peter Jackson, for The Lord of the Rings, had to work with, not, you know, it was a high budget, but it was three huge movies. It was and a he was, risk. Yes. And no one was, had ever done anything And like he was that. forced to take chances and think about new ways, how to introduce characters and how to showcase things and to use the effects to their highest potential. And then The Hobbit came and everybody was like throwing money at him. Yeah. Do whatever you want. And that leads to trouble. And when really the, that trilogy is defined by excess. Yes. So, but, like the question that, that keeps ringing out, like I try to imagine... Because I understand where the desire is coming from. The notion is, you know, if Sony were to give up Spider-Man, give him back to Marvel, there's no question in anyone's mind that Marvel would have done a better job with it. I think that they would have had a better understanding, Marvel Studios, right, as, as, a, as a filmmaking entity, uh, uh, would have had a better understanding of why Spider-Man works and not do the whole John Travolta thing in Spider-Man 3 and not get into the, the really weird things that Bob Orkey did with his clocks and, and all that nonsense in Amazing Spider-Man 2 and the conspiracies and all that crap. So I, like, I understand the fans who feel that if Spider-Man became an MCU character, it would be the best version of Spider-Man on film simply because they would be, you know, there Marvel a lot to live for, actually, because... Yeah, like, that's a high standard I, I, to break, I, I, right? I, I, not, most of the Spider-Man movies aren't very good. No, when the you, first when, two Raimi ones are okay. Yeah, and they were okay at the time. When you look at them today, they're yeah. like... Well, because our standards are constantly rising. Like, it, Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, the, the first two Raimi films, were okay in the era of... 2000s X-Men yeah. and Blade yeah. and like the pre-Iron Man films in which that was just the best you could hope for right that was as good as it was going to get as far as you knew and then all of a sudden you started getting Iron Man and Thor and Captain America and the Avengers which you know and the Winter Soldier and Guardians of the Galaxy and that was just you know your your standards rising constantly with every film so I understand why people want Marvel to take Spider-Man back because they would fix him like, they would find what, whatever it is. It's clear from the output that Sony don't understand Spider-Man. Like, they're treating it as a, as a machine, as a money factory. It's not working because they don't understand what people want from this character. But the idea of throwing Spider-Man, who is a primary character, a protagonist with his own franchise, his own identity, his own world, and like the, the, this report that we're talking about situates him in Infinity War. I have to believe that Infinity War is going to be crowded enough, given that it's 
There's still any characters for Avengers Captain too. Marvel is going to be there, and, Bla- and Black Panther, and Doctor Strange, and Ant-Man, presumably. And Squirrel Girl, hopefully. Oh, fingers crossed for Squirrel Girl. But, you know, so clearly they have all of this going on. And to throw Spider-Man in, I feel like it would end up being either a pointless cameo, or just shoehorning him in. And I feel like it would be a mistake. If you want Spider-Man in the Avengers, you have to wait until after Infinity War. Get rid of all of the existing uh, players and bring in a new generation. Bring in Spider-Man. Get back to Fantastic Four. Like, Marvel Studios is in a place now where if they wanted to put together a more (laughs) expansive universe than what they already have, they could get the Sony properties back. But integrating the two would be a mistake. You could have a Spider-Man movie series and, you know, get the X-Men back and do do an X-Men reboot, whatever. You can do these things. But you don't have to have them all in the same film. That would be a huge mistake. They they may they may be getting Namor back. Why would you want him? Well I mean I mean swimsuit issues. No, I Namor. <laughs> he looked pissed in those swimsuit issues. I mean I don't know if you've seen the old ones where he's, I have. He's got like this clam and it's a very small clam and you can tell that How can you do a swimsuit version of Namor? He is wearing a swimsuit. Well, didn't they put him in clothes recently? Recently, but recently. not at the time. Yeah. So um I, I understand like if Marvel have the agenda of like getting all the properties back that they sold because they didn't have a choice, I get it, you know. It's theirs. They should have it back. Fine. Just don't do it all in the same place because I'm having tr- like the, the Avengers. Sadly, well, no, not not sadly, but you know the Avengers, as a matter of fact, have been established at this point. There's an existing group dynamic, and yes, obviously Whedon is adding characters. Right? We have Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch coming in, and Vision, and we have all of these uh, Phase Three characters who are presumably going to join up. That's fine. But Spider-Man is something else. He, he, I mean, people forget. I guess like they just assume that that's the status quo because Spider-Man has been an Avenger for a while now. But people tend to forget that for the majority of his existence as a superhero, he was always the person who didn't join. Well, that, but it's a new generation. For most of people sure. reading comics nowadays, Spider-Man has been an Avenger for over 10 years But now. for most of the people reading comics today, Gwen Stacy's been dead for longer, and she yes. is the main character in Sony's uh, movies, and she well, was actually one of the bright spots. Well, now she's coming back, so, you know... What? What do you mean she's coming back? Oh, well, we have Spider-Man. Alternate universe Gwen Stacy. Well, whatever. see, spoilers for Spider-Verse. Apparently, the big one is coming back. Oh, the real one? No. Who? The bigger one. The bigger Gwen Stacy? Who's the bigger Gwen What are you talking about? Uncle Ben. Run that by they're, me again? They're saying they're gonna bring back Uncle Ben. Who? What? Oh, okay. Um, that, that's run that by me a, a third time because I don't think I heard Uncle you right. Uncle Ben. That sounded like you <laughs> telling me that the only person who has ever stayed dead in the history of the Marvel Universe is coming back. Well, Bucky came back. It used, to be, it used to be that you could say that Uncle Ben and Bucky were the only two people in Marvel who stayed dead. Now you're telling me... So Bucky came back and that was fine. But now you're telling me Uncle Ben's coming back. You're going to have a bionic leg, maybe? A bionic leg? (laughs) Wow. The kicker. Wait, are you serious about this now? That's that's what Ferenc Spider-Verse told me. I'm not reading it myself. Again, rumors and speculations. Who's doing Spider-Verse? This is Dan Slott. Of course it's Dan Slott. Of course it's Forget it. Sleeping dogs do not lie for Dan Slott. Oh, are you kidding? Uncle Ben. Well, Uncle Ben, the guy whose only significant moment in life was dying and giving the great power and responsibility speech. That's it. Now, you know what's going to happen. They're going to come back. They're going to find out he's an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. 
<laughs> I, I, I don't have time for this. Moving on. Yes. Okay, so the other major thing that happened in the last two weeks was that Image had another expo. Another in San one, and another one, and another one. Hey, I'm here for Image Expo. The nice thing about it is that what they do at these expos is just like one long chain of announcements of books. Now, these books may come out in may the near not. future. They may come out in ten years. It's Image, you know, like you, you accept the quality of the books and the fact that they will always, always, always be late. I mean, I, I look at the pull lists for, for Image, and I don't... It's rare for them to get a book out on time. It's usually it shows up two weeks later, three weeks... There's always... The latest image, image Expo had two Brian Wood series, and we still have not got Rebels, so, which is, like, one year ago by now? Yeah. Nothing... That, that was when they announced it, yeah. 2014. Yeah. Well, nothing came out of it. Well, Brian Wood... He has his time. He has his troubles, and yes. it may be... I mean... You brought this up as a possibility, and and the more I see it, the more I wonder if it's true uh, that his uh, the controversy and the scandal around Brian Wood may be uh, uh, affecting how. No, because he has two series announced. I think he has he the was problem taken off of Spawn. He was I, he wasn't taken off. He took himself off because they rewrote. Did his, he? They rewrote his script. Apparently, he gave them a script mm-hmm. and they rewrote everything that he did. And he was like, "No, screw you guys. I'm going home." Well, Surely you have to work hard if they're rewriting a Spawn script. No, like, no, no. What could possibly have that? What could that script have contained that made the people who? Well, it's Spawn Brian Woods, so let's think about hard. it. Either it was very politically left-leaning, yeah, or the protagonist was actually a quirky teenage girl standing at the side while Spawn was while Spawn Ooh. was doing his thing. Demo Spawn with Ooh. Becky Clooney. <laughs> what? Oh no, no, no. Becky Clooney. I love Spawn Becky Clooney. Would be interesting, but. Anyway, okay, so, anyway, so let's do sort of a quick... We're probably going to talk about these books more in detail okay. when slash if they're solicited. But for now, it's sort of in interesting. In the year 2525. <laughs> we're all going to be old men by then. Yeah. You remember Kyle Rayner? Anyway, so um, let's do sort of a quick rundown okay. of what was announced. So, Savior. Yes. Uh, this is written, co-written by Brian Hogan and... Todd McFarlane for our sins. Yes. Art by Clayton Crane, who I actually like. He used to do uh, X Force. Okay, he's pretty good. So it's this. Oh boy, I've seen Todd McFarlane try to do uh, pseudo biblical stories. Like the 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 solicitation text is about you know what if God was one of us? Can we leave Joan Osborne out of this, please? No, we cannot. Rude, rude. What are you like? Leave the poor woman alone. She doesn't want to be associated with. Uh, Todd McFarlane. Anyway, now I don't know Brian Hogan from Hole in the Ground, but Old Testament faux Christian superheroes has been old since before Spawn, and uh, I don't see the point. Like my my problem when you when you start explicitly bringing religion into superheroes is that you're actually stripping a layer of metaphor away from the genre. Because yes, Superman is Jesus. We don't need you to tell us that he's literally Jesus. There's a whole thing there about how. Uh, his planet died for our sins, and now he's here to save us. We get that. That's part of the subtext. You, when you bring in an explicit religious angle, you're actually simplifying the metaphor that was already there. My problem is completely different. Wasn't Image already publishing a book called Savior recently? There was a book called Savior. Yeah, I think but by the guy who used to do the inking for... Uh... Oh. For the spirit, uh, right, right, but it, no, but it was a completely it? different book. Yeah, but you know, two books called Savior in the span of two years because Savior was pretty recent. I don't remember who wrote it. Can you Google for it? Well, yes, I, I will consult my friend Doctor Google. 
uh, uh, and see, because that, no, now that you mention it did not actually occur to me until that time that there had been a previous book, and it was something about, oh, it was The Saviors, James Robinson. Yeah, James Robinson. But I think that book sort of disappeared, didn't it? Or maybe, it, maybe no, it was a five-issue miniseries, oh, okay. I think. It was a black and white thing. Something about lizards replacing humans. I remember, like, having read it, because James Robinson, which we'll talk about him in a okay. little bit, but, um... No, but it was five issues, I think, and then it just oh, okay. disappeared. Okay, so... And yep. they either... I remembered it called Savior, so my bad. It, it might have been one of those books that they initially announced it as being an ongoing, and then due to low sales, they sort of retconned it into being a miniseries. No, that's a Marvel thing. The image uh, doesn't no, the Image do that. does it sometimes, too. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah, there's going to be that. The other thing? So, I mean, religion and superheroes. What? I'm not here for that. What ifs? I don't yeah. Like that. Okay. Scott Snyder and Jeff Lemire are teaming up for a graphic novel called A.D. After Death. Uh, as the title implies, you know, death is cured, and then what do immortals do on a rainy Sunday morning? Not the most original high concept. No. But... Those are two very strange creators who work together. Not necessarily. I, I always thought about Scott Snyder and Jeff Lemire's two ends of the, of the spectrum. Really? And why? I don't know because they Jeff Lemire was was all, even after all his superhero work, Jeff Lemire was for me was always the indie guy was doing personal work, and right. Scott Snyder is doing the either big horror or big action. Yeah, but those big horror and big action are also sort of indie. I mean, which, no, but it's, which a, it's a different type of indie. Is it for me? I don't know. I mean, I've always considered them as being closer together than most writers in the sense that they both work with sort of subtle horror. Well, subtle isn't uh, isn't uh, Scott Snyder's. No, oh, listen, uh, American Good. Vampire has disturbing imagery, but the freakiest moments in those books are the ones that are under the okay. surface. Uh, I'll take your word for and, it. Well, I mean, we reviewed Witches too. It was the yeah. same way, right? It, the the fear of what you actually see on the page is not as great as the thing that you know is under the panel. So it's an it's an interesting connection, and these are two writers who are you know they're, they're talented in yeah, their own but right. It it brings up to light the problem with image that as a publisher that keeps on saying we're bringing in the new, we're bringing in uh, the all new creators and all new voices. No, it's no, it's, they're not. It's Scott, not. it's Scott Snyder and Jeff Lemire. Have we they ever know said it. that? I don't think that they because I mean, Eric Stephenson had that thing about we're the new voice. He's always saying wasn't you know, he talking? I I thought he was talking about the content. Content wise, you but can you, but you can't deny it. That image well, is putting out like new. No, because at this point we already have the standard image book. We we may we even made fun of it about well, it's a mystery in space in a science fiction setting. Eh. Image has like three of these running around right now. Yeah, but there's and the another only, two the only way. three in the market though. I mean, th- there's a lot of similarity. Okay, I like I can see the argument where, for example, the um, you know the young girl superhero genre. So you have. Right, uh, what was it called? Well, you have Wayward, and then you have Wayward, and then the immediately hex. afterwards, uh, Hex is Boom. Yeah. But, um, why am I, there was a book that we compared Wayward to. What, like, Goners? No, that's not Image. Well, Goners has, wow, like, why, the, why, um, why am I blanking out on this? Yeah. No, well, I, I was talking about the mystery in space. Again, Rush Limit, and, and Copperhead, and, and Southern Cross, yeah, and yeah. the Fuse, and blah, blah, blah. I, I, I accept that. There are superficial similarities. I but, think that... And I have a problem with it, again, because Eric Stephenson had this huge statement last year mm-hmm. about, no, oh, even two years ago, about how he, I remember that he was bringing in the, all the new voices and the U.S. should support them because they're the new creators and they're the diversity. I'm like, it's the same guys that Marvel and, and DC have. I think that... I it's mean, literally the same guy. Not only the same guys, usually it's the same guys doing the same thing because here's another Ed Brubaker book, which is a noir story. 
You have never seen that from Ed Brubaker before, unless you read every single previous Ed Brubaker book ever published. Right, but you can't make the argument that he's been publishing the same thing in more than one book at the time, because he didn't start the fade-out until after Fatal. No, but I'm saying... If you want to argue that Ed Brubaker is sort of in a rut with these noir stories, sure, but on the other hand, it's not like... Because, yeah, he did Fatal and then the fade-out, which are very similar stylistically, but he's also doing Velvet. Yes. So it's not, and Velvet is not noir. No, I don't have a problem with that. What I, my problem is people keep there's on... There's no new talent. There's no new talent and people Because they're keep, all at boom. Yeah. And, <laughs> or top shelf or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And people keep on treating it as if it's the new talent. Because I think that the, the way that people are, are looking at this is strongly affected by how they perceive the industry as a whole. Because for all that Image has had a great couple of years, it's hard to deny that... Marvel and DC are still eclipsing them and that when you generically speaking superheroes are still so dominant so to say that Image is putting out five science fiction books I'm like those are probably the only five science fiction books in all of American comics that are worth reading on a monthly basis so I mean I, I, I get it like it would be great if they were able to integrate new voices in the way that Boom does because with Boom you're always surprised with the new people Yes, And with Image, it's always like, I mean, here, so my reaction to this announcement about After Death was, okay, I know Scott Snyder and Jeff Lemire. I have heard this concept of, you know, death is cured and then what do immortals do with their time? That was, in fact, the premise for Zardoz, if you, <laughs> if you are familiar with that Sean Connery classic. I am familiar. In which a giant stone head declares that the gun is good and the penis is evil. I am very familiar with Zardoz, and I'm waiting for the IDW relaunch, which, <laughs> is, which is sure to come someday. Which is sure to the come Zardoz someday. Zardoz comic book. Yes. 20 years later, Sean Connery <laughs> is still in the red bikini. But anyway, okay. so, yes, I, I there is a certain level of... If, because you are familiar with these writers, you are willing to take a chance on them that you wouldn't necessarily take. Because that's the thing. If this book, like the flip side of that argument is if after death I had read the description and I didn't know the writer, I might not pick it up. Because I don't know who this person is. And like this new, this is actually a problem with Boom. With Boom, you have to be willing to roll the dice because you can get someone like James Tinian, you can get someone like Grace Randolph. Or you can get someone who, I mean, Boom puts out the occasional flop. It's yeah, not yeah, that their, yeah. their output is universally great, and you could end up on one of those. So I'm okay with Image playing it safe for now. I think that, you know, moving forward, they definitely want some new Okay, but, so okay. Let's, let's rush through these. Speaking because... of familiar names, mm-hmm. two projects from Brian K. Vaughn. That's rare. Brian K. Vaughn usually does one project at the time. Yes. I'm hoping, well... No, usually and, what and, he does is, is one comic and one TV project. Yeah, that I, that I don't care about. I'm the dope. Yes. So we have uh, a miniseries called We Stand on Guard with uh, Steve Scrooge. Hello! That's a name I he- haven't heard in a forever. person? Steve Scrooge was a 90s uh, artist who was a very, very dynamic, very action-packed super, super artist. He did Wolverine for a short while, which was terribly written, apparently, but very beautiful. And the last thing that I remember he did was Doc Frankenstein for Burly Man, which was... Doc Frankenstein. It was the thing that came out right after they did Shaolin Cowboy and was equally crazy and equally beautiful, but it petered out because he was producing, like, one book every four months and then he just disappeared. Yeah. But he, he, he's a great artist, so if, they're t- if you're telling me he's doing a miniseries about giant robots, that's it. 
Giant robots from the United States invading Canada. I don't I don't care who's writing it. A monkey could write it. If Steve Scores is drawing giant robots attacking one thing or another, I'm there. <laughs> so we have the best of both worlds here. Because yes. Brian Vaughn is not going to give us just... And so his other project is Paper Girls with Cliff Chiang. About four 12-year-old newspaper delivery girls. That's a very different thing from giant robots invading Canada. It is. Paper delivery girls. girls. Yeah. Sure. It looks very 80s. There's like a Walkman in the promo art. He's doing his Spielberg comics? God, that, that would be interesting. Yeah. Now, okay. Whether you like Saga or not, God, I know I keep bringing it up, but whether you like it or you hate it or you used to like it until the fandom turned you around, whatever. This is a book that, as far as I'm concerned, gives, gives Brian K. Vaughn carte blanche to do whatever the hell he wants. And I'm not saying the man's infallible. I couldn't stand this Swamp Thing. Got bored with Ex Machina very quickly. The less said about that. He did this awful, awful arc on Buffy the Vampire Slayer for Dark Horse. Everybody and did awful arcs on Buffy I was, the Vampire listen, Slayer for Dark Horse. I was like Roll Julia and Street Fighter. You know, and by said, then defeat is a possibility. <laughs> it was just like shocking to me that he put out something so bad. But at this point in his career, I feel like anything he puts out is at least worth a look. Yes. So I'm there for both of those okay. projects. So we mentioned Brian Wood. Yeah. Rebels uh, <laughs> still not announced. <laughs> okay, so he's got uh, Starve with Daniel Zelge and Dave Stewart. Okay, I read the description for this project. Evil Celebrity Chefs. <sighs> Evil Celebrity Chefs. Evil Celebrity Chefs. And the one Celebrity again. Chef who can stop them. Now, I always assumed that celebrity chefs were evil anyway, so I'm not sure where the new idea is here, but... That's a high concept, but the thing is going to have to compete with me in the other big chef-starring comics, which is Wonton Soup. <laughs> but Jeff Stocko, and that's a that's high bar high. to cross. That is a high... You know what's going to happen? We are going to have to review the first issue of this as Gordon Ramsay. Oh. What the hell is wrong with your ink? And it's other, awful! And the other thing? So the other project, uh, he's reuniting with Gary Brown, who was his artist on uh, Northlanders. Parts of Northlanders, because that was a roading, right, roading right, cast. cast. Um, so this is Black Road, and uh, it's another Viking story. He's doing Northlanders again, only without the trademark. Yeah, I, I wasn't crazy about Northlanders, so I, thought, I probably it, it, wouldn't come because back Because Northlanders was very arc-based, and every arc was different. You had some, some that were good, and some that were bad, and some that were very, very good. Well, uh, also Vikings, uh, I don't know. I, I like Vikings. Vikings are, are okay, but <laughs> I feel like... Are you a ninja man or a viking man? <laughs> Por que no los dos? Why can't we have both? Ninja um, Vikings. Yeah, but not not from Brian Wood, because, I don't know, Northlanders didn't... It's like, if you if you didn't care for Northlanders, don't come back from well, Black Road. I, I kind of I cared for Northlanders, so I'll give it a shot. So James Robinson's back... Okay. How long can you keep on giving the man credit for things he did okay. 10, 20 years ago? So that, that that's exactly the, the thing here. Okay, I'll admit that gave James Robinson a lot of leeway. And I mean, like, more, I think more leeway than I've ever given any other writer. Even Alan Moore. Even, like, with everything that he did afterwards, you know, I read Lost Girls with the look on my face, like the kabuki mask from, from Japanese opera, you know, like, ah! But I, I was still, you know, when it comes to James Robinson and knowing that Starman is one of the greatest superhero sagas that DC or any company ever published, this 80-issue epic 
that was amazing from the first issue to the last and never had any weak points. This amazing, amazing run. Because of that, I will admit that when a Robinson project is announced, I'm like, I take a deep breath, I drink some tea, and I'm like, okay, let's try it. Maybe he's finally back. And then he does Earth 2, and then he does Hawkman, and then he does all new Invaders. And Cry Hawk- for Justice. I was getting to that. <laughs> no, you weren't. Nobody wants to get it. <laughs> Cry for Justice. Wait, I was crying for we Justice. We mentioned Savior. I've not read Savior, but it got good reviews. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. I read oh, the five okay. issues, and I was like, I... I okay, it so... Was je- it was... You know what it was? Did you read, um, Rassel? Yes. Jeff Smith It was a weaker version of that. Ooh. So, yeah. no. And and I think that I'm finally ready to... Uh, Off the horse. Off. The words that were going to come out of my mouth were let it go. And I know that if I do that, I'm going to have to start playing the song. So no, no. I'm, I'm ready we can't to... Pay, we can't pay the credits for the song. <laughs> I'm ready to release James Robinson and no more leeway. Because we have two announcements here, and neither of them interested me. Okay. So he's working on Airboy, which is a book about himself. Again, and... that was announced... Two years ago, Airboy. Yeah, but I guess now they're now they re- mean it. They reannounce again. Yeah, this time we mean it. Swear to God, this time we're getting married. Um, so it's a Airboy is basically a book about James Robinson and Greg Hinkle trying to relaunch 1940s comics series. Airboy. It's Grant Morrison. It's a Grant Morrison idea. It's one of those. Yeah, it's one of those. And you know who does them? Grant Morrison. And you don't need anybody else to try his hand at it. Abed Nadir from Community is sitting somewhere, going up, meta, 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 meta. No, thank you. Yes. And okay. now, his other comic uh, is Heaven. This is a science fiction comic about humans and aliens joining up to go to war with God. That's an interesting hook. I won't deny it. It's not religious. It's science fiction. Like they're treating Well, you have God there, so... No, but they're treating God, Heaven, and the angels as just another form of alien. So, wh- what, so what's the meaning of that? It's, it's meaningless. It's basically... That people, might be the point. It's just sci-fi military tale, then. You, you can call against it gun. A- no, it's the imagery of like the science fiction marine, and on the other side of his gun is a you know flaming wings and a sword. I think I think Warhammer 40k already did that like fifty thousand times by now. I wouldn't know. Well, it's called yeah. Warhammer forty thousand k, so I'm assuming that's the number. But yeah. um, <laughs> okay, I mean, it's or, an interesting hook for a or even Evangelion, comedy. which you know at least did something philosophically interesting with yeah. it. It failed, but it did something interesting. Did you it. understand what what they were doing? I yes. know that they did something, but I'm not sure what it was. You're talking about Neon Genesis. Uh, yeah, the original series. Okay. I have not watched their... Yeah, re- that's one of movies. those animes where I watch it and I'm like, I know that something's happening here because people are moving and talking and screaming, but I can't... I, ask me what it is. It was meant know. to be the Watchmen of Giant Robots anime, and it yeah. was not. No, that, no. W- that would be Gundam Double Zero, but... Let's okay. not, if we start talking about anime, this is going to be the anime podcast. Yes. And, no. Okay, so now this is a situation where Image's reliance on existing names works against them. Because unlike uh, After Death, where I'm like, if I didn't know the writers, I wouldn't pick up the book. Here it's like, the angle sounds interesting enough for me to check it out, but James Robinson. Oh, next writer, please. So, now here's something I did find interesting. Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda have a new series called Monstrous. This is set in an alternate past in Asia, turn of the last century. A teenage girl is able to command giant kaiju, which are called uh, leviathans. Okay. So basically, Godzilla is brainwashed by a teenage girl. So, okay, I know that Lou has been doing stuff for Marvel. I was never I was never amazed by her work. It, it was never bad, but it was never amazing. Yeah, she, I think she was the one 
brought X twenty three sort of into greater prominence after she was introduced. Yes, I think she also did uh, uh, North Star's wedding. Yes, you know, um, not okay. Again, so she, she's she she never had a place to express her ideas in the comic books that she wrote because it was always you know the North Star idea. He was probably brought in from above. You know, right. we need a big gay wedding. We need a gay wedding. Yes. And, 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 well and X-23 was brought in because she was introduced in the X-Men cartoon that was running at the time, yes. X-Men Evolution. And then Joe Quesada turned her into a prostitute. Uh, we don't have to talk about that. No. Uh, she writes young adult novels, yeah. and I've never read them. I read, well, I, I didn't read her original work, but my introduction to Marjorie Lou was she wrote an X-Men novel called Dark Mirror. It was okay, she didn't get the characters at all. Now, that is a risk that you run when you're doing, you know, existing characters. Monstrous is an original yeah, series. so we'll see about that. Yeah, you know, this is a first, this is the sort of thing that you pick up the first issue and you keep an open mind because huh. I think it could work. Okay. Now, we mentioned uh, the long-awaited... Uh, Eight House. <laughs> Eight House project by Brandon Graham. I think we mentioned it a couple of times. I did. It's it's my most expected series for next year for two years in a row now. It's a, I, like I'm trying to wrap my head around it because they've been talking about it for so long now. If I understand correctly, this is a new shared universe within Image Comics yes. that is based on science fiction and fantasy hybrid. Yeah. And it will... Brandon Graham is the, is the showrunner. He's, He's the showrunner. Show he is doing some of the projects, and others he is bringing in uh, other writers. So the two projects that were related to Eight House that were announced at Image Expo, uh, we have Mirror by Emma Rios. Uh, she's writing yes. this time, uh, illustrated by Hui Lin. The other one is written by Brandon Graham himself. It's called Arclight and uh, art by Marion Churchland. Yes, his wife. His wife. He's a, a very good artist in her own right. I've seen, listen, I saw the previews for, for Arclight. Yeah. Have you read her She's original cool. graphic lo- novel? Which one? She did a novel for Image called Beast uh, in 2009 or so. Very good. Uh, I will look it up, though. Because it's a Beauty and the Beast takeoff. It's those, very good. Those images were phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. She's so, the, the announcement of Eight House... Image has announced it a couple of times by now, and it seems that they're finally getting around to actually launching mm-hmm. series for Eight House. Brandon Graham is the writer for Profit. Yes. Now, which is which is pretty much the same thing, because Brandon Graham went from writing and drawing it into being the showrunner of the Profit series, which yeah. is one series, but, you know, he works with other writers. Simon Roy was writing parts of it, and there are tons of artists. A writer with vision, right? Yes. This is what we were talking about at the top of the hour, right? This is someone who does have the sort of <laughs> the brain power to actually go for it. I am really excited about this project. Yes. Um, I I love everything that Brandon Graham did until thing... now, including his porn comics from the nineteen nineties. I don't know anything about that. That's a thing that exists. I do have one reservation. Yes, and it's a reservation that is. More related to patterns in general, and not Brandon Graham himself. The narrative structure of a shared universe comes with certain downfalls, certain uh, downsides, and potential danger zones. We have seen on more than one occasion how shared universes can go downhill very, very quickly when you have too many cooks. But it's just it's just free for issue meetings. It's not a ongoing okay. forever project. If it's limited and self contained yes. and independent, I, I, I can feel more comfortable about it. But like the, the, the shared universe can offer a lot, but it can also be very, very difficult to access. I, I trust it because all the creators announced the familiar ones are great and for the young ones, you know, like uh, 
Huey Lin. I have no idea who that is. The, oh, the artwork is... Yeah, it looks great. I just I have no Has idea. Has anybody else written anything before? I assume she did, but I wouldn't know. I, I, don't I know. only know her as a spectacular... It's as one, an artist. It's one yeah. of the weird things about that project is it takes all those great artists and they're like, they're writing because Brendan Grant, spectacular artist. Mm-hmm. Ridiculously good artist. And that's the one thing that makes me sad about Eight House and Prophet is he's so busy writing and running things that he, has nev- he hasn't drawn an issue well, in the, listen, he's forever and ever. he's not a bad writer either, though. He's a very good writer, yeah, but so... but he's a better artist than he's anything else, and he's one right. of the best artists in the biz. Yeah, that's true. So I, I'm just kind of sad that he's not drawing more stuff. Give us Eight House. Yeah. Like, let us have it, and, and yeah, okay. just put it out already. Let's run through the others, because we're, <laughs> we're you know, okay, killing well, time. Okay, well, really, there isn't a lot to talk about in the other ones. Um, okay. So Scotty Young has a new series with Jean-Francois uh, Beaulieu called I Hate Fairyland. Really, if there's one person who can make me buy a comic about an axe-wielding 40-year-old trapped in a little girl's body, it's Scott Scott Young. Young, (laughs) He's exactly the kind of crazy that this comic needs. I'm there for that. Here's something for you. I think you might be interested in it. Your old friend. Yeah, Warren Ellis and Declan Shelby with Jody Belair, of course. Of course it's Jody Jody Belair. Belair, yes, are doing Injection, which was again announced last year. So it's a Mm -hmm. science fiction story with the typical Warren Ellis protagonist. Cane wielding investigator looking into archaeological ruins. Uh-huh. It's a Warren Ellis comics. It's a Warren. I'm, I like Warren Ellis, so I. I don't wish care. I could say the same, but I feel like every time I read one of his newest works, it's like spot that Ellisism. Like he's doing that thing again. And but you know what, the man okay. has his fans. Let uh, enjoy it. Um, now here's something that I thought was very interesting. Yes, Alex DeCampi and Carl Speed McNeil and Jen Manley Lee are doing No Mercy. This is about a group of spoiled American teens trapped in Central America. Now, I say interesting, I'm not necessarily saying good. Because, literally, the first thing they said about this book at the Expo, like, they mentioned the writer, they mentioned the... And the first thing they said is that the aim of the series is, and I quote, to dissect American privilege in other countries. This is a trap. And it's a trap that comic book writers have fallen for again and again. If the message you want to communicate is more important than the story through which you are trying to communicate your message, you're going to come off as preachy. Alex DeCampi is British-American. Carlos Speed McNeil is American. Jen Manley Lee is American. I'm not sure they can make a claim to authenticity that would validate prioritizing the agenda of let's talk about American privilege abroad. Tell me a story. Don't tell me the agenda you want your story to communicate. I can figure that out on my own. I'm interested simply because the late, the last time Alex DeCampi worked with Carlos Speed McNeil, it was on all things My Little Pony Friendship Forever, <laughs> the comic book series. That was when they met, I assume, to work together, and that's just that's weird. when their dark plan was formed <laughs> in the blood in the blood soaked halls of My Little Pony. Listen, I saw that Brony documentary a couple of days ago. Woo! Yes. Let's let's not talk about bronies. <laughs> now, anthology comic coming in. Another Brandon Also, but Gra- it's another Brandon Graham project, but it's not related to Eight House. So it's uh, Island. Emma Rios described it as heavy metal, but not for teenage boys, which I wish that was... I wish teenage boys were the demographic for heavy metal, but... They were in the 1980s, where you couldn't see naked comic That wasn't comic for teenage boys, though. You just know there were 40-year-old men picking up those... But, okay. So I get what she... What, I understand what she meant. Anthology comics, though... They're hit and miss by their very nature. Yeah. Right? I don't know. It depends on who you choose for it. Like, would you pay four ninety nine or five ninety nine for an anthology comic? 
I am buying the Dogcrush Presents monthly, so I assume the answer is yes. You don't have any Because I always feel like if you, you pick up a, a 48-page anthology and you like one story in it, you're going to feel like an idiot at the end of it. Yeah, but if you're like three out of the five, sure. you feel better. And if you like all of them, you're like, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm the idiot who for years was buying 2000 AD just for Nikolai Dante, and there was literally nothing else in the magazine that interested me at all. So I, I'm one okay. to um, now here are a few, we're talking about new names. Okay. I don't recognize any of these names. You might, so I don't what? know. Um, we have Run, Love, Kill by Eric Canetti and Jonathan Sue. Eric Canetti, I think, is a, is an animator, I think. No? Probably. From the look of the art that was released with this book, I'm guessing it is. It sounds, the, the description of the book sounded exactly like Greg Rucka's Lazarus, about, like, this girl... Who's an enforcer or an assassin for a family? So we already have Lazarus. So we have Lazarus. I don't really. But know. on the other hand, like I don't know who these people are. So it's the sort of here are the unknowns, right? Yes. Okay. Um, Brian Bucalato and Tony Infante are doing Sons of the Devil, which is a psychological horror story about cults. That sounds like a dark horse book for some reason. No, it would be a dark horse book if the cult was actually worshipping the real Satan who was in the book. Well, I assume I, I it would think, be in the book. No, from the way that they described it, it was uh, like realistic. Like the, the, the protagonist of the story is the son of a cult leader. And the book is about like exploring the psychology of cults. Again, like... If it's realistic, that could be interesting. Because what, yeah. I, what, what, what I was saying recently is that dark horse needs a bit... Some books that are more grounded. Yes, they do. Because, uh, well, what, what are their primary properties right now? It's Hellboy, Buffy, and what? Dark Horse? Yeah, Dark Horse. They're... Well, we have a new book we're going to talk about. Well, yeah, but that's a miniseries. I yeah, mean, like, okay. their major well, properties are No, but Image of... needs grounded books also. Well, Image To, avo- to avoid becoming the genre. But nobody reads FIFA Thieves anymore. They I think I think it's only there as a pitch for the upcoming television series, which is... There's going to be a TV series someday, obviously. Well, yeah, the advantage with Thief of Thieves is that it's the kind of uh, a TV series that can be made on the cheap. Yeah. But, okay. Okay. So, now here's one that I do find very interesting. Okay. Jeff Lemire, another project by Jeff Lemire. It's a five-issue miniseries called Plutona. Uh, he's art by Emmy Lennox. Five children find the dead body of the world's most famous superhero. That's the premise. Like, again, Image Ex- Expo didn't go into details, I'm assuming, because... Without knowing They're, anything, I don't care. The premise interests me. Also, the dead superhero in question is a woman. So okay. already, you know, wasn't that wasn't that the first arc of Powers, the world's most famous superhero? Found no, dead. because the first arc of Powers immediately put you in the perspective of the, the detectives, detectives. Yeah. and here it's like five kids. The way that it was described at the expo was "Stand by me with superheroes." Which I because Jeff Lemire already had again. That. The thing is, Jeff Lemire had the other big superhero deconstruction thing announced from Dark Horse last year. What? The Black Hammer thing. Oh, right. So I'm like, finish with Did that one? come out? No. That didn't even come out See, yet. and, it, and, it, and, it, and it, it wasn't Image. I think it was Dark Horse. Dark Horse, yeah. But yeah. Okay. I, so I wanted to... Because I would have known if I'd read that. I yes, would have remembered. Start something before you announce something else. It's right now, the point... I'm already all, you know, filled up on those things before they're even announced. So right. Well, image. Take it with a grain of salt, uh, but you know, it, it will come out eventually. Uh, Chip Zdarsky <laughs> and Keegan McLeod. Mm-hmm. Now, they made headlines here. They yeah. caught attention by saying their new book, Kaptara. Zdarsky called it the gay saga. Those are very big shoes to fill. Yeah. Now, can Zdarsky live up to it? 
We haven't seen him as a writer yet because no. the Howard the Duck thing has not out yet. Yeah, no. But okay, I respect We've his seen ambition. Him as a writer on Twitter, his Twitter feed is he's very, funny. Yes. He's funny, and uh, and uh, apparently, I mean, Matt Fraction has said on more than one occasion that Chip Zdarsky does contribute some of the humor in Sex Criminals beyond just the art. Like he does take part in the writing. Okay. I, again, like you're, you're when you explicitly compare yourself to like we are saga but gay. Th- that's a big boast. Isn't saga the gay saga? Is it? Who's gay in saga? I assume some of the people in sextillion. Oh, sextillion is like freak central. I don't know if you want to compare anything that goes on in there. Okay. They're like human caterpillars doing so. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> sextillion creepy place. But um, so. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, this is really going to be Zdarsky's year, right? If uh, if it actually comes out this, if year. Kaptara comes out and and Howard the Duck comes out and both of these projects are good, sure. And the last one, I'm going to let you talk about this one. I have no idea. Revengeance. That's a terrible name. It is a very very bad name. It's it's, very, it's a it's something. It's like something out of Metal Apocalypse Death Clock. And the but right, th- th- this is the weird thing. Like you hear the name, and your expectations immediately drop to the floor because revengeance. But then you hear who's doing it. Darwin <laughs> Cook. It's Darwin Cook. Writing and drawing, right? Yeah, and I'm not even gonna say anything. I'm gonna let you take it. Darwin Cook is awesome. Darwin Cook. Darwin so, Cook. So, well, but where the hell has he been? I don't know. I ah, was doing the covers for DC, and that you know he was doing 27 covers for one oh. month. So. <laughs> God, they were beautiful covers. Those damn variants, though. Yeah, I'm going to buy the art book when it comes out, and I didn't read a single issue, because yeah. you're looking at the cover, and it's like, oh, it's beautiful. And then you flip out the first page, and like, no, no, you know what? Uh, it's just like ripping the covers <laughs> off all of these issues and sending them back. Like, I don't want them. Just give me okay, them. Okay, so... All right. Okay. So that's the news. news that's the... <laughs> yeah, we didn't have solicitations, but it doesn't matter, because we'll we have ha- the Dark Horse... No, we'll have solicitations they... next time. Oh, my God. Our next episode, we'll have solicitations. So, uh... That will also <laughs> that'll be interesting. Let's actually talk about comics. Let's talk about comics that have actually come out. Yeah. And deserve to be talked about. So well no, they deserve okay, to be yeah. talked about for good or for ill, we'll find out. So our first review is either the long awaited or n- none cared about at all. All new Miracle Man annual number one. Bless you, Marvel, for your horrible naming convention. <sighs> okay. Uh, written it's two stories. Yeah. Written by uh, Grant Morrison with art by Joe Casada is the first one. Mm-hmm. The October Incident, 1966, The mm-hmm. Priest and the Dragon. And the other one is The Miracle Family in Seriously Miraculous with story by Peter Milligan and art by Mike Eller. Yeah. And the, 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 the whole reason this thing came about is because there was a big story about how Grant Morrison in the 80s was supposed to write a short story for Miracle Man. Mm-hmm. And apparently he got into a phone call with Ellen Moore, which was very Ellen Moorish, in which Ellen Moore threatened him, don't dare touch my baby. In the I name will... of the snake god, you shall not pass! Yes, I will kill you or whatever. Uh, so the story was written, but was never actually drawn or came about. And it was a script, basically. Yeah, so Marvel had uh, now have the rights for all of Miracle Man, the old and the new. And they have Grant Morrison still in their good graces. So there's Which a, surprised me, by the way, because he's not doing anything for them. So No, I, but, you know, he doesn't care. I, I think at this point he would approve it just to get back at Ellen Moore. Because no, I remember, like, he left Marvel in a very unpleasant... Yeah, in a half after X-Men. the new X-Men. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and, and now that I think about it, he never went back. So Well, he was busy at DC. Okay, okay whatever. whatever. Whatever his reasons so, are. So... 
Now, here's, when, the, here's the thing. When this annual was solicited, we talked about it, and you were very much against it. I time. wasn't against it. I was just, I don't care. Yeah. Because it's it's not an important, for me, it's not an important part of the Grant Morrison oeuvre. Yeah. It's, it's just mean, a, a short story written as a beginning writer for a series that he wasn't responsible for. Yeah. It's It's like... For me, it's like finding the lost script for. Uh, you're already making excuses, but we're gonna. Get no, into because that. For, because for me, it's like it's the same thing as people saying making a big deal of they found a script for a story wrote for Tharg's Future Shock or whatever, like a four page story. It's the same thing. No, I've read his Future Shocks; they were pretty good. No, but, but um, you know, losing one of them wasn't a big deal. It's not like losing the, right. uh, the lost issue of I don't know the Invisible. It something. wasn't Miracle Man twenty six. Yes. Okay. And for what some I, reason, because it's, you know, it's too short as a story to actually sell it on its own, even mm-hmm. Marvel wouldn't try to sell you a 12, uh, six-page story or Oh, whatever. they'd do it if they could get away with it. They, but they can't, yeah. so they just put in, they slept on a Peter Milligan, Mike Allard story. Which really, if you need a fill-in group, you might as well yeah. go with Milligan and Allard. Yeah. My, my position at the time was that, you know, it's apocrypha, it doesn't have anything to do with the main, um with the, the main narrative that we're also invested in, let's just hope it's a good read. So, well, I've read it. It's not bad. What not... kind of Alan Moore derivative fan fiction is this? I don't think it's... Deriv- well, it is derivative okay. because at the time... What's the story about I the knew. first story? No, 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 no. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. Okay. okay, so... What's the first story Let about? me read you a quote from the first story. Yes. This is from Morrison, right? Then there is nothing, only a smell of burning, burning. and a smiling dragon. Here's the quote from issue two of Alan Moore's run. Without the other two heroes to bother him, he could do whatever he liked. He grew up. He grew up into a dragon. You're using the same words, the same descriptions, the same terminology, and the only thing that happens in this issue is that Kid Miracle Man is a monster. Like, you didn't... Yeah. The the London issue is either out now or came out last month. Trust me. People know that Kid Miracle Man is a monster. You don't... And... It's this 12-page, 11-page, 12-page story does not have so much as one original thought. Kid Miracleman kills a priest because the priest was a priest in a grand. That's not story. why he does it. He kills like the priest could have been anybody. Yeah. Mir- Kid Miracleman is not discerning when it comes to picking victims. As no, I think, everything I think that Alan Moore did. I proved. think we're supposed to understand there is a reason because no? you know you saw me that night, didn't you? What night? What the hell is he talking about? It doesn't matter. The, the beginning there is of the reason. story... No, listen. It doesn't even make any sense in the context of the story. I went back and I reread more to try and figure out where the story fits in. This story, according to the, the title caption, takes place in 1966. Yes. In Moore's story in 1966, Kid Miracle Man was, you know, not the psychopath he was becoming. That's in, cause the, the present, the quote unquote present day of Miracle Man, where all of these more story unfolds, is in the 1980s. And, and no, it's but, explicitly but during said that, that time, he, during that time, he, he, he was becoming a monster. He was becoming a yes. monster. This is 1966, and the story literally calls him the Antichrist. Yes. Graham Morrison is like, you know, he's the dragon, he's the Antichrist. 30 years before Alan Moore's story actually reveals what he is. 20 years. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Like, okay. that's, like that's, that's the inconsistency it's, we should you know, be concerned but with. But the thing, it's a very... It's what the hell is he even talking about? Like, what is the point of this story? It doesn't have a point on its own. It's it's not... And I, I can't blame Grant Morrison because... I, I do! Because that was meant to be, you know, a, an addendum to a Miracle Man story. But it's not an addendum. 
it, because listen, it's, it's, a, it's a superficial too. interpretation, first of all, because it completely strips Kid Miracle Man of the psychology of why he becomes a psychopath. Because again, like Moore was writing in the 1980s, so it's not like they were into decompression back then. He only has a few panels to explain it, but he explains it very well. Kid Miracle Man becomes a psychopath because he, after this huge battle that removes the, the adults that were supervising him, he's basically a 12-year-old child with a vicious streak who has unlimited power. You let that boil for 30 years or 20 years or 25 years or however long it is, and he becomes a monster. Then he's the dragon, he's the Antichrist, he's Satan, fine, whatever. Here, it's like, you know, he does, he does this pointlessly monstrous thing for no other reason than because he's a pointlessly monstrous person. It fail, th this story fails on its own because it's not a satisfying read in isolation. You don't know anything about anything that's going on over here. It's not a satisfying read because it doesn't fit into the more game and storyline because this is something else. Like he's designed here as the person that he only really becomes at the end of Moore's run. Despite the fact that this is happening no. before Moore's run. I, so I, no, what I, the no, hell? no, no. I think it's different. I think... How is it different? Because in Moore's run, the thing is that he was a kid trapped in an adult body. Yeah. And the point here is that he's a kid trapped in a teenager body. So How, That's not a teenager's face. That's you a, see him at the end, he looks like Ringo Starr or one of the Beatles or whatever. But it's. I think it's supposed to be a teenager because the evil here is... Is different. The, it's a petulant, angry, leash at the world evil. That's Kid Miracle Man in in, in two words in, uh, in Moore's Run. I mean, you remember? No, because in Moore's Run he was vicious, and here it's like I kill you because I don't care for you. Is the emo? Is the but that is Kid exactly Miracle what Mir Kid Miracle Man's first kill, like in the climactic part of Moore's Run, he kills the the kids who try to rape him, and then he kills the nurse who was nice to him. Yeah, right. He lets her go, and then he comes back, and says, you know they would have thought that I was soft, and he just. Kills her, her yeah. with one move. And that is exactly what's going on with this priest. He doesn't have any reason for doing it. He's just... And his Miracle Man form doesn't age. No. He's always, you know, the yeah. same... The well, same. it looks different because here the art is by Joker. Right. Well, okay, let's say and the, the good thing. fine. The art's very good. The art's good. I, yes, I, but... And I, I'm not I'm not a huge Joe Casada fan. I never was. Well, but... Ninjack. What? Ninjack. Daredevil. Ninjack. I mean, really, when you want to talk about Joe Quesada's What's career... What's wrong with Ninjak? Okay, you can't see me in the podcast doing this, but I'm basically indicating his giant man boobs. But let, let's not... Okay, but the art here is very good looking. The, very uh, good the title page is very Will Eisner thing with the you know captions on the rock face. Yeah, the, the title of the, the story is built into the... the okay, fair is fair. Joe Quesada is very clearly giving Miracle Man the respect that it deserves artistically. They yes. didn't get Chuck Austin to come back and do this. But, again, like, I read this story. First of all, the fact that it's by Grant Morrison and does not contain so much as one original idea. And this script was written at a time where he was arguably at his peak. I mean, yeah, we... No, no, that was before his peak. Why? This is, a, this is more or less around the time that he did Zenith. Zenith isn't his peak. Z no, but Z okay, Zenith isn't his peak, but like you can tell from Zenith that he was smart and that he had all of these original concepts and that he he was legitimately good at it. I think here I don't. There's nothing here. This is literally a scene that is a repetition of a scene that more than... And I mean, Grant Morrison has been taking flack from people who don't like him, who have been calling him an Alan Moore fan fiction writer for years, and here's all the justification they need. 
Well, really, and, and like now I get Alan Moore. No. I, <laughs> yes. I never Fair, ever thought that Fair, I would say. Fairly Morrison was very more influenced. The first four issues of this is of an Anim influence. The first this four is issues an of Animal Man were basically Grant Morrison saying, "Well, how Alan Moore would have done it?" And Arkham Asylum, you know, the work that made him famous was Listen, an Alan Moore rip. I I can't believe that I am saying this. It is absurd that I am saying this. Yes. But I I get what Alan Moore was so pissed off about. Now, usually I'm content to write him off as a crotchety old man, but here it's like this script. Morrison keeps referring to Kid Miracle Man, the dragon, the dragon, the dragon, the dragon. I'm like, that was Moore's thing. Why are you not bringing something new to the table? And Watch I can imagine... Listen, I can imagine Alan Moore looking at this issue and being like, you've got to be kidding me. This guy's ripping me off. I can't... Like... There's nothing and, here. And, it's, it's insane. And, for, and you see... And Grant Morrison was okay with this being published? I don't think he cared. What? I, I think he did it again to spite more because this uh, after the long public spat that they have, you know, every year they're doing the public spat thing again. <laughs> so at this point, if I were Morrison, I would be like, "Well, that would annoy Alan more. Good, publish it. I don't but care." But it doesn't look good for him. I, you read this is like if I, your impression of if your opinion of Grant Morrison is let's say shaky due to his recent output. And then you read this story, which was being... I mean, the way that this annual was solicited was... Yeah. The Lost Script, yes. right? By Grant Morrison himself. Look, what will he contribute? And really, like, you know, you're talking... When you talk about Miracle Man, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, if there had been a third angle to that triangle, you would imagine that it would have gone to Alan, to Grant Morrison, right? No, because even at the time, they were bitter enemies. Oh, but forget the enemies. Like, well, uh, I, Okay, the dynamics is problematic, okay. but it's like, if you were to imagine the epitome of, like, the golden age of... of British comics. Not the actual golden age, but, like, the, the golden Brit age of the, the British invasion. The British invasion, yes. Yeah. If you were to imagine a comic that could encompass all of, like, the top tier, it would have started with Alan Moore and continued with Neil Gaiman and then give it to Grant Morrison. And this is his contribution to the movie. Again, but I, I can't be angry because I wasn't expecting anything. What I see here is Gr young Grant Morrison given a job by whoever, the guided warrior, like, well, you, we need you to do a six-page script or whatever, and he's like, well, what's this comics like? Reading, you know, the first few issues of Miracle Man? Well, I should probably copy his style. He's not going to... He didn't copy his... But he did. He, he, it's not just the style that he copies. It's the content. That's the thing I find most okay. offensive. The fact that he basically recreates... Like, this entire dialogue that he has with the priest before executing yeah. him is word for word exactly the sentiment that he communicates with his victims in the London attack. It's exactly the same. I am evil and beyond your understanding. And, and of course, you have, like, the helpless priest who's praying to God and Kid Miracle Man is like, God's not here because Zarathustra, right? They mention, they mention Nietzsche. Nietzsche, right? They mention Nietzsche. Quantum and, mechanics, and obviously. Like, how can you... So, okay, now I understand why... why more, more, uh, okay, what about the other half of the story? Um, <sighs> okay, Milligan and Allred, it's... A, it's better okay I'm, I'm it has it's a point qualified it it has a point to make and it's better because it has a point to make even if that point has already been made so, so often the point has been made in the first issue of miracle man what happens in this story is basically miracle man and kid miracle man and the miracle man family, the miracle family and the golden agent minus miracle woman so yes. she's not in this and they are flying around uh, uh you know opposing garganza and 
there are these weird moments of cognitive dissonance where Miracle Man wonders why I was he, beating these guys and they aren't dead even though I'm super strong. Yeah. And then, you know, it ends with young Miracle Man saying, so what, you want people to actually be hurt by superheroes? How absurd would that be? Ha, wink, ha, wink, ha, nudge, ha, nudge. Ha, ha, ha. And again, it's a point... It's a point already made by... Milligan has made that point. Yeah, no, it's a point made in the first issue of Miracle Man, you know, that started with the Golden Age tribute version and cut with the, again, the Nietzsche quote. Yeah. Now, here is the lightning, here is the thunder, now, and here is 1980. Now, this is a bit better because you have Mike Allred on art, and if there's something that yeah. Allred does well is giving you a Golden Age version of comics that always feel a bit wrong, and you can never quite put your finger on why does it feel wrong? Mm-hmm. Because he can do proper naivete, you know, with Silver Surfer. Yeah. But when he wants to be a sinister edge to it, to put a sinister edge to it, he just, I can't even say wh- where is it. You know, in the faces, a bit in the background, in a, twitching the line a bit, and suddenly everything has this undercurrent of evil darkness coming through. I Zombie was good at that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's well done, but I, for, for me, this is even more pointless in the Borsum story because it's it's obviously slapdashed to you know up the page count. It's well already on the one hand. I mean, okay, because so. if Morrison wouldn't write the third part of Miracle Man, Mike Allred could. Michael Allred, Michael Allred uh, Peter Milligan. Yeah, I sorry. don't know if Milligan was quite up to that to that level of. No, he would subvert the hell out of it. You know, for yeah. uh, you know his Miracle Man would be a clown. Yeah, I mean, and uh, no, but also. Let's face facts, right? Milligan is hit and miss. Yes. He, for every ecstatics, you get uh, what was it, Electra? <laughs> he's not. He's not always uh, on on in top form. Enigma. But so, like this story. No, I actually. I like I, Enigma. No, I'm saying that's a weird Milligan. Yeah. Yeah. But or you know, he did X Men for a while after Chuck Austin left, and wow, that didn't work out at all. No. But um. So I, I actually like if I had to choose between two of these. Quite frankly, I'm content to write this annual office. A complete waste of time that offers nothing to anyone who's interested in Miracle Man. Lost Miracle Man story should have stayed lost. But, um, like, of the two, if I have to choose between the two of them, I would say that at least Milligan and Allred, like, they're making a very unsubtle point that the comic itself already makes, and in that sense it's repetitive. But at least they're not, like, lifting more wholesale into the story. Both parts look gorgeous, though. You know, it's the great, art's fantastic. Great art from both artists. Yes. But, Pointless. Eminently pointless, and for four ninety nine, screw them. Yeah. No, thank you. Okay. Moving on to Dark Horse. Yes. How uh, long has it been since we, had, we reviewed a Dark Horse comic? I don't know. I assume we reviewed something. We must have. We must have. This can't be our first review. Uh, Lady Killer, number Lady one, out of five. It's a miniseries. series. Yes. yes, by Joel Jones writing and Jamie S. Rich drawing. Mm-hmm. So the plot is, there's this woman... And she's a killer for hire, but she's also a mom. Well, bum, I bum, would bum. say she, well, that's that is okay. I, it's okay, Mr. So and Mrs. Smith without Mr. Smith. I really, really like this issue. I like the it. reason I like it is because, like, I disagree with your description. Okay, she's not an assassin who is also a mom. She's a mom who's also, also an, an assassin. assassin. Okay, when when this project was was first announced. We were talking about how, like, the, the, the comparisons that we came to in terms of film were it was either going to be The Long Kiss Goodnight with Gina Davis. Or right? Serial where, Mom. Where she's really sort of the killer. Yeah. The, the mom is just a fake identity. Or it was going to be Serial Mom where it's played for laughs, right? Kathleen Turner is a psychopath and, you know, it's just, it, it's funny. 
neither of those fit this story. Because what we have here, there's a, okay, so there's a couple of interesting things at work. First of all, the art style screams mid-50s. Yes. Screams. It sort of reminds me of an inverted version of uh, the Joe Casey miniseries, The Milkman Murders. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. The colors, especially, you know, very bright and saturated. Not bright, saturated sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And no, but also the, the choice in, in style, yeah. in fashion, in design. Like, the art is radiating the sort of Norman Rockwell, idyllic 1950s suburbia fantasy. No, people trying to look like Norman Rockwell, but failing completely. Well, no, the, the later... Okay, so the, the yeah. way that the comic is structured is that you see her as an assassin first. And then she comes home. From the second she comes home, it's Norman Rockwell. She's got the two beautiful blonde kids and the husband and the mother-in-law. And she's got, uh, she's uh, working on on, uh, dinner, right? Dinner has to be on the table when the husband comes home. It's this idyllic fantasy. But the way that Jones played it, I thought was really clever. Because she enters into this environment with us having already seen her stab a woman to death. So we get that sort of conflict immediately. And now this could have just been like a, a, a gag comic. It could have been completely like shallow and disposable. What I found most interesting here is that the way Jones characterizes uh, uh, this woman, Josie Anderson is, is the protagonist. The way she characterizes Josie is that she would prefer to be the housewife because she has a scene where her her Boss. handler, yes. the person who gives her assignments is calling her up, and she's like, I'm with my family, not now. And he shows up at her house, and she, you know, she's furious at him. So it's not, like, the the cliché choice here would have been that, you know, because she's a 1950s housewife, and she's so constricted in her domestic life, so when she's an assassin, she, like, breaks out and becomes her real, authentic, happy self. But no, she's happier at home. She's happy, she wants to be the mom... And it's just that, you know, her, her boss is sort of forcing her to forcing her to complete these assignments. And she completes them well. Like, she manages to kill uh, her first target by pretending to be an Avon lady. Which, no, I guarantee you that no one listening to this podcast knows what an Avon lady is. <laughs> but <laughs> it's basically door-to-door. Um, yeah, perfume salesman. You know what it is? If you've ever seen the movie Edward Scissorhands. Who hasn't? So the mom was an Avon uh, saleswoman. Yeah. That, that, like, you know, you go to door to door and you sell cosmetics. So, and that was her cover. That's not her actual career. She doesn't have, like, uh, she is the 1950s housewife in the sense that, uh, because the mother-in-law says, you know, why don't you have dinner on the, on the table? Because she was busy stabbing some lady. You notice, you know, the way everything is always stained in the background and then the white around. That's just... Yeah. It's a very interesting choice. It's the, you know, the combination... Everything is always covered in blood. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's just, I really, really enjoyed it. Like, again, because it could have fallen to sort of the shallow patterns so easily. And I'm I'm glad it's a miniseries, because if it was a series, I would say it's a bit... You can't really stretch the idea too much for me. I don't know. I I feel like I could read an ongoing series about this in the sense that if the conflict is that she is steadily losing the battle between separating her domestic and and life, that could go into interesting places. Actually, there was a thing like that. Jennifer Blood. Well, it started off as a Grand Morrison just doing a female Punisher. The first six issues weren't very good, but then Al Ewing took over in issues 7 to 25, and it was about this woman who killed gangsters because she hated them. 
and how slowly she couldn't hide it from her family and things got very complicated for her when she was trying to hide the facts and literally hide the bodies. Present day? Yeah, yeah, it was present day. Okay, because I think also like the 1950s vibe here adds something to this story. The anti-madman. Yeah, because in modern times you wouldn't really have, like it would be less of an issue because it's easier to hide things. Does it? I mean, when does it take place exactly? Because we don't have they a don't year say. caption. They don't well, the fashion, you know, the fashion tells you, and the fact that it's again Avon calling tells is, you. No, but also the letter page is written as a sort of old school advice column, like Dear Josie. Right? Yeah. So, and, and that's the sort of. I think it is sort. It, it is set in nineteen. Oh, also. In okay, nineteen so, whatever. No, the reason that I think it's fifty sixty specifically is because the woman that she kills. Her real name is Romanova. So presumably, there's some Cold War thing going yeah, on over okay. here. And if that's the case, I would say like 50s, 60s would be ideal. So I think we're both game for this. I really like I'm here for the whole series. I really enjoyed it. Okay, and the last uh, the last first issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the long-awaited, at least by us, uh, Squirrel Girl. The unbeatable, unbeatable Squirrel Girl, number one. <laughs> Written by a podcast favorite. Ryan North. Ryan North, yes. With art by, just a second. Eric Anderson. Anderson, yeah. So, Squirrel Girl. How do you solve the Squirrel Girl problem? Have we ever talked about Squirrel Girl in Yes, we mentioned there once we, once this book right, was, was solicited. solicited. Okay. Because so... the thing with Squirrel Girl is that she, for a long time, she was a one-note gag. And it was a very funny gag that worked in moderation. The joke was that she's a... Very low-level, very ridiculous-looking, and named superhero mm-hmm. who constantly beat up all the biggest threats off-panel. Yeah. It started with her first story, which was written by... Uh... Slotnik. No, 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 no. Her first, very first story was an Iron Man backup, oh. written by none else than... Steve Ditko. Ditko, written and drawn, the Woo! first Squirrel Girl. That makes so much in sense In which she now. beats Doctor Doom by covering him in squirrels. That makes, I, I, and then Denslock took, and then years later, Denslock took it as a gag. Well, if her first appearance was her beating up Doctor Doom, obviously she's the most powerful superhero of them all. Right. So she was beating up Modok, and then Gladiator, and then Galactus, mm-hmm. all of which off panel. Yeah, that's the, well, that's the gag. Right? Yeah. Okay. So how do you, you can't make a series out of it because the series. Obviously, well, this is is this a series or a mini series? That's a series. It's that's an, an ongoing. ongoing series. Oh, okay. I was under the impression uh, that it was a no, no. And okay. uh, the plot starts with Squirrel Girl uh, leaving the Avengers Mansion. <laughs> she was the babysitter for Luke, jo- uh, not Luke Jones, uh, uh, Jessica, Luke, Luke Cage, Cage, Jessica Jones' baby, baby, and she's leaving to college because. That's well, what female superheroes do these days, well, I assume. Well, the issue technically begins with her singing like a variation of the Spider-Man, Spider-Man theme song so. with Squirrel Girl for like two pages, and it's a very Spider-Man opening, classic Spider-Man, because it started off with her beating up muggers just for yeah. you to know that she's a proper superhero with behind all the gags. Yeah. And then she leaves to college, and we meet her roommate, who's a very quirky college roommate thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's a supervillain, and there's a jokey fight. It's an interesting issue, and I liked it, though I think there are some reservations, and I think you have more of them than me. I so mean, you start with the reservations. Okay, so, so I'll start with the reservations. Okay. I get it. I get the joke. I even... Th- there there was one moment in this comic where I did like laugh out loud, which is... Um, so the enemy that Squirrel Girl is confronted with here is Kraven the Hunter, who is mortal. She can't figure out how to beat him, because her squirrels are, are losing in the fight, so... The plan that she comes up with is to throw him really high into the air so she can think about a plan. 
And one of the options that she considers is, well, maybe she can just keep throwing him up until a future utopia arises, and they'll figure out how to deal with that. That's funny. Like, good, you know, good for Ryan North. That was that was amusing, and he does a good job of presenting her to new readers. Every page has sort of this gag line at the bottom. Yeah. Um, if you read it in print, it's almost unreadable. So digital, it's, it's pretty. Digi- it's digital pretty good. is okay, but because well, digital you can zoom. Yes, yeah. but in print, I actually had to use a magnifying glass at the point. Seriously, form. it's because not only it's very small, it's sort of a yellowish beige on white. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Okay, but well, it's, so that's a bre- that's a printing. The one liners right? are, are are amusing. They're always commenting on the yeah. content of the page. I get the joke. I like the joke, but I think that there's a problem here, yeah. which is that one of Ryan North's quirks as a writer, and I think something that that has made him very endearing in other projects, is that there's a bit of self-awareness to his characters. We, saw, we saw this in Midas Flesh, and we see it in Adventure Time, where to some extent the characters are aware that they're in a kind of story. The, the big thing with Midas Flesh was that Fatima assumed that she was in a different kind of story than what she actually was in. Yeah. So, th- that is a component of his writing, and I think it falls a bit flat here because Squirrel Girl was a meta joke to begin with. So, it doesn't... It, I don't know. I, I read it, and it's like, I understand, and I guess some of it was... Like, some some of the jokes were funny, but I was trying to imagine this, like as an ongoing, and... Like this issue doesn't want to make me go any further. She she has Deadpool's guide to supervillains in her pocket, and she defeats Craven by telling him, you know, you keep fixating on Spider Man. Go fight Gigantor and prove that you're an actual hunter, right? That's it. That's actually a good solution. That's, it, it is a good solution, but and it's a different type of superheroing. It is, but I I don't know. I don't. There was something here. A and, and in sequa? fact, and, well, this is a squirrel sequa. There's a comparison here to the next review that we're going to be talking about yeah, yeah. That, that I had completely different feelings about. And I, th- I think I know why, but I'll save that for later. So here, I don't know. It might be that I'm too familiar with the Marvel Universe. So I know that what Ryan North is doing is funny in a specific context, but I don't... Okay, Squ- there's not enough of Squirrel Girl here. What? She's yeah. thrown the whole issue. I know, I know, but I feel like the way that North presents her is very, very, very superficial. Aside from the fact that she uses squirrels as weapons and she has this whole quirky mindset, I don't find her compelling beyond that. Like, there's nothing more that would make me say, I want to know what she does next. Because uh, my assumption is going to be, like, okay... Her shtick is that she beats supervillains off-panel, or in this case, like, on-panel, but with unconventional solutions. Okay, so... I, what, what I, no, I like her shtick, because her shtick is that she's a very Silver Age character here, in this term that yeah. she thinks she lives in a positive world, she doesn't recognize that she's in the modern, dark Marvel Universe with genocide all around her, whatever. But because and when she's around, it's not. And yeah, and, and that's interesting for me, because she beats Kraven, but basically... She she gives him help. She counsels Craven into a better sort of life. Well, a better sort of villainy in this case. <laughs> it's like you're always talking about being a hunter. Go hunt something. Yeah. What are you sitting and here? And that's the sort of thing that Superman would do in the 1950s or 60s. No, Superman and, would slap somebody and then no, no, no. Because the the whole point, the point with chance. Silver Age Superman comics was that he was so powerful that 
conflict wasn't the issue, you know, he was never in danger. Mm. So it was always about finding a creative and interesting way to, you know, solve the problem of the issue. Because right. it was never a threat. There was right. never a threat. And Unless then, Red Kryptonite was involved. Or Green Kryptonite, or whatever. And or even then, But we knew, you know, these comics were aware yeah. that Superman couldn't lose, not only because he was the most well, powerful, because he was the star of the issue. I think the writers and the artists at the time were aware, but it wasn't necessarily something that was explicitly communicated to the reader. I, and here I feel like Ryan North has told me, like, he, he's letting me see behind the curtain and being like, you know... If Craven is in this issue, Squirrel Girl's gonna whoop him. Yes. And she's gonna whoop him like no contest. And I feel like, okay, having established that, I don't know. So the question isn't, the question isn't if she's gonna beat him or if she's gonna survive. The it's question becomes, yeah, how she's gonna do it. And I, I trust him and Ryan North enough to find interesting ways to let her win. And I like the fact that there are jokes at the expense of Squirrel Girl, but they, they aren't not over. A- some, you know, you know, Craven doesn't recognize her, obviously, and when she tells him, I'm the, and he keeps on complaining her right, life for, you know, the wrong name. prairie dog custom woman. Yeah, but Craven's an idiot. No, but he's but, con- is literally confused, like, who are you? Yeah. Like, fairy woodland creature lady. And Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Something about this didn't work for me. It, I, it, I, 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 I think so. It might I, be a humor for, thing. It might be. I found Although, it funny. I found it funny, and I, I found it endearing. And I found it very endearing, and I really like her design here, and it avoids a lot of the common design problems. Yes. Again, if it were in the 1990s, oh boy. They actually distributed her body fat to areas besides her chest. Yes. No, but even different from today's modern girl superheroes, like right. Batgirl or oh, Spider Gwen yes. or Bendette, who have a very. Uh, slim, toned-down yeah. design in here. It's like, no, she's a woman. Yep. She's not a girl. She's a woman. I, I like it. Um, I like I the design. I, I, I like had, the jokes. I just I like had everything. mixed feelings. The art was, was spectacular. Yeah. The, the art is absolutely appropriate. It's the right art for that kind of story. Yeah. That's all that you need to I know. I just, I don't know. Didn't, didn't click for me, but... You know. Some of the expressions are a bit too cartoony, like in the last panel on page 14. So let's go oh, no, nuts. Get nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's a bit, it's nuts, a bit too right? much. Yeah, but it's a bit too much, but other that than might that... Be it. that... That might be it. That, that there's too much here. I mean, this is a 22-page issue. It's not like a double size or whatever. And there's a lot... There is really a lot. I always prefer a lot for le- for little. Normally I do too, but I feel like it might have been too much here because I'm I'm sort of I, I think that it's so like the tone is is set so constantly that by the time you get to the end of the issue you're just exhausted. Like I'm, I I get to the end and I'm like, okay, I know what you're what you're heading towards, but I'm just I'm tired. <laughs> you know this this uh, more squirrel talk and, and I, I get it, I get it. I'm, it's too much. This might be why she really does work best in smaller portions. Well, so but. coming up next issue, Galactus, obviously. Yeah, well, well because really, look, the issue ends with her saying, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, so obviously Galactus is up next. Um, like, I, I, I can't, I can't say that I hate this book or that I really, it pissed me off. Like, certainly not to the extent of Miracle Man Annual. But, but like, okay. Cards on the table, would I come back for issue two? No. Cards on the table, I would. Okay. Okay. So, our last review, as always, is a graphic novel slash trade paperback slash a collection of some sort. Mm -hmm. More than 22 pages, I think that's... Thank God. Yeah. 
Uh, and we're going to talk. Uh, you chose it, so your introduction. So this is The Adventures of Superhero Girl, uh, written and drawn by Faith Aaron Hicks, published by Dark Horse. Based uh, on a... It's a collection of webcomic strips. Yeah, be. well, that's... I mean, I actually was introduced to Faith Aaron Hicks first uh, through her webcomic Demonology 101, which ran from 1999 to 2004. That's early webcomic it history. It is. Now, it's an early effort on her part, but even then, you could see that she had a real knack for character work. And I think... I mean, it's it's easy to sort of lose the context in the shuffle here, but this book predates Cameron Stewart's Batgirl. It predates Miss Marvel. It predates... predates the net, no? I think it does. Yeah. This came out in 2013. The collection. The collection. The comic was going on beforehand. So, I mean, it does in many ways predict a lot of the things that come afterwards. So, the adventures of Superhero Girl are about a superhero named Superhero Girl. She does, She never actually reveals her true name, um, which is part of the gag. Yeah. And she lives and fights crime in well. Canada. <laughs> in Canada. Her main problem is that she can't find a supervillain to fight because she lives in Canada, which, sweetie... Come live in Marvel's version of Canada. You'll be fighting Wendigos and like super soldiers all the time. No, the government long. would corrupt you. You know, in, in, in the Marvel Universe version of Canada, it's the most evil country in the world. It is. It's like, you know, people are like cannibals and there's like military department, bases every. Department H always, you know, captures you and corrupts you. They're the worst. Yes. Department H is like really bad. Like, they're the worst government agent ever, and yet somehow they have funds. And, they, I mean, all of Canada is basically like that. A death trap. Oh, God. So, but she lives in, like, an ostensibly a more, quote-unquote, traditional version of Canada, and she basically spends her days waiting for something to fight, except... All she has Canada. is are low-level muggers and ninjas, which are even more low-level. And the occasional giant monster. Yeah. Now, what I find so appealing here is that... You have this notion that she's trying to live a normal life. Like, she's balanced, she's doing the whole secret identity thing. She's badly. Very badly, because she keeps forgetting to take her mask off. But <laughs> she's, she's living this life. And, but normal for her, like, she defines normal as being a superhero. Yeah. So, when Hicks is doing this sort of slice of life, you know, uh, uh, my clothes shrunk in the laundry, but in her case, her problem is that her cape shrunk in the laundry. Like, for her, the, the normal challenges that she's facing is the superhero side, not the civilian side. Civilian side, she doesn't have as much of a problem. She, like, her superhero problem, her nemesis, the, the nemesis that she ends up finding is a fanboy who keeps telling her, like, you're doing this really wrong. Like, you don't have any dead parents in your origin? How can you be a superhero? Like, what are you talking about? And and after enough exchanges with this guy, whose name is Sean, amusingly enough, uh, uh, she looks at him at one point and she's just like, You are my arch nemesis! And he's like, No, I'm not. I'm just some guy. It, it's, it's so funny. She has ninjas. She fights ninjas here. And there's Ninja King who actually does wear a crown. Who steals her job in, like, he, he goes in for a job interview. That to she spite was her. Just to spite her, and he gets the job. And, and becomes he becomes a productive member of society. I laughed my ass <laughs> off. He quits crime and ends up being a productive member of society because he stole the job that was meant for her. And her roommate is, like, supportive on the one hand, but also poking fun at her. And, of course, she lives in the shadow of a perfect older brother, Kevin. Who can fly. Whose super name is apparently Kevin. They just like, everybody Kevin. Yes. 
He doesn't have the superhero name. And we, we should mention the whole thing is arranged in a sort of a daily street thing. So yes. every page is almost a standalone. You yeah. know, there is there's a plot going on, but every page ends with a gag. Yeah. Well, that's the webcomic format, yeah. right? Every strip is self-contained. And the fact that you can make every strip almost self-contained and keep on building a story with characters appearing and reappearing and mm-hmm. the King Ninja subplot, which, you know, borrows the giant monster. The giant monsters and the end plot. Yep. That one of the things, I mean, she, you know, she resents her, her brother for being so perfect and she finds the one guy in town who doesn't like her brother. And for a second, she thinks that, like, the way that Hicks paces herself is so perfect here and it's so funny like there's this panel where she's standing at this rally this fan rally for kevin and everyone's like kevin 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 and one guy walks up to her and he's like oh i can't stand that guy <laughs> and there's just this panel where she looks at him and she's like has she finally found her soulmate and then the next thing he says is well good thing i brought my shrink ray gun and it's funny it is so funny and like her future oh she she has a bad hair day yeah. So she puts a hoodie on. Everyone immediately assumes that she's turned a su- evil. A super villain girl. She immediately, like, within seconds of stepping outside of her house with a hoodie, they're like, she's evil now! <laughs> and another superhero breaks down the wall of her house and she's like, I heard you were evil. That turns out to be her evil future self, who turns evil because she dropped toast. <laughs> butter face down on the, at, at the end of a very the bad The comedy week. is perfect. The cuteness is on high alert. This yeah. comics is ridiculously adorable. You know, grown men, grown men reading this are in danger of becoming little adoring yeah. girls. The, the, again, the big monster attack, her only response to it is, you have whiskers. <laughs> That's so adorable. And, and of course, you know, I would buy that plushie. Y- y- he really is adorable. The, the cat, Doesn't the, he the, look- the, the, the cactus. Now that's what the monster from Multiversity should have looked like. This big one-eyed thing with whiskers. That but- <laughs> the monster from Cloverfield should have looked like. <laughs> <laughs> that would have improved that movie so, so much. I mean, really, like this collection, it is one metafictional gag after another. Like, every single panel is something in which she is making some kind of humorous commentary on the nature of the superhero genre. But I think the reason that I responded so much more to this as opposed to Squirrel Girl, I think is because Squirrel Girl is very specific. The joke with her is her position within the Marvel Universe. If Doctor Doom was just an average nobody dictator, it wouldn't be as funny, the fact that she beats him, right? But Superhero Girl here is doing something that's a little broader. Like, she is commenting about things that could be relevant for a lot of different characters. For example, um, she, I mean, she, she's not rich, right? She has to call her mom for, for, allowance. Uh, for an allowance. And then, of course, her mother's like, but Kevin's doing just great with all of it. And she has to hear about Kevin again. So, she could be a send-up of Spider-Man. She could be a send-up of Supergirl, right? Living in the shadow of the male uh, uh, superhero. She could be a lot of different heroines. And she's poking fun at conventions that are valid, not just in the limited context of the Marvel Universe. And I think it's important that Kevin, in the end, isn't a jerk. No. She, she's he actually, a, he's, he's not, he's he's not a nice jerk guy. at all. Yeah, he's a nice guy. The only problem is that where he stands compared to her and yeah. the thing that she pro- he projects onto her. Their rivalry, I mean, they're siblings, but their rivalry is entirely one-sided because he 
he is hurt when she doesn't want to work with him anymore. She wants her own identity. She wants her own self. And, and again, can, like you can read that as Supergirl, and, I guess. Kara wanting to be someone besides the female counterpart to Superman. But like because they're actually siblings, there's also an element of like you know she's living in the shadow of her super successful older brother. And in fact, one of the things that that keeps pissing her off is like Sean, her her civilian nemesis is a huge Kevin fan and she finds that so irritating like on top of the fact that he's like you're not a proper superhero if you're not like missing an arm uh, you can't fly you can only yeah. jump high and she defeats an, uh, a giant monster by basically punching it really hard and he goes flying out into space and Sean is like well why didn't you do that before I forgot I could do that <laughs> it's it's just so much fun have you read the introduction by Corbusier for the TPB I did And he, ma- he, ma- he makes a salient point about he thought that it was a superhero parody when he read that but it's not it's a comedy story featuring a superhero but it's also a superhero story yeah proper the joke here isn't that she that superheroes are ridiculous yeah. <laughs> it's no. not it's not what Milligan was doing in the in America land anyway What Milligan was doing there was you know oh isn't it silly how we always expect yeah. people not to get hurt and here it's like she is is undergoing the same narrative thrust as Peter Parker. She's having the crisis of confidence and she's trying to find what she's good at and she's trying to do better in the world. And, you know, she's this positive character and she's a positive superhero. And she has, like, this this notion. I mean, what I think what she's parodying here is not the genre, but specific tropes within the genre that, when you look at it today, really are ridiculous. Like, the whole thing where she gets a costume change and everyone immediately assumes that she must be evil. And then, of course, her future evil self turns up. But it's not... And, like, and when they talk about it, she's like, you know she's wearing an upside-down heart and I wear a star. And they're like, oh... That, that's the difference, right? And their own little fangirl, other superhero. Well, yeah, not a fangirl. Spectacle. Like, yeah. You know, it's like, that's the first time she has... You know what that reminds me of? One of the most uplifting uh, uh, moments that I can remember... Uh, uh, in when they were doing Marvel next like back when Marvel actually thought that they could do a whole new generation of superheroes if only uh, you remember gravity yeah gravity ended with him meeting Peter Parker spider-man yeah. and tell and spider-man telling him you know you did good and that like affirming moment meant so much to the character and here it's like you know superhero girl encounters another superhero who tells her like I really look up to you that's a huge moment for her And it's played completely straight. It's not a funny thing. Like, the fact that she keeps forgetting to take her mask off is funny, but it's not a parody of... The, it's not saying that superheroes are dumb. It's saying that specific things superheroes do can be silly, but she does them anyway. Yeah, it's the kind of comic that I give the highest grade to because it's the thing that my nephew can read yeah. and I can read and we can both enjoy it. Not for different things, for the exact same things. Mm-hmm. The rare breed of... Everyone can read it, you know, like the great Disney works like like yeah. atomic Robo, you know it's rare, it's rare to do these things right. You always end up aiming either too high or too low, yeah, but this the, one hits on the spot. The assumption tends to be in the market that when somebody says all ages, the automatic assumption you make is that it's dumbed down for kids. That's just like the 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 assumption that you make here when we say that the adventures of superhero world is all ages. What we mean is anyone at any age could read this and I think enjoy it because it's not like the humor here is super sophisticated or and like you know you have to be 
You don't even need to know the genre as well. No. Because it's, it's, she explains it's it. The univer- it's, all of those are universal tropes. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful comic. I absolutely adored it. Strongly recommend it. I also recommend uh, Demonology 101, which was her earlier work. It's a bit rougher, but... She, she, supposed, what, what she supposedly she did, has a graphic novel coming from first, second, later this she year. Has a few, well, she has a few. Yeah. I mean, she has Friends with Boys. She has one, I, I don't recall, that came out through Dark Horse about like, a, a boarding school story that I was actually less happy with. It's oh. a murder mystery in a board, boarding school. But basically, what she did for Superhero Girl here, she did for Buffy in Demonology 101. So that was good. Uh, she also had this ongoing webcomic called Ice, which was this futuristic dystopia about global warming, uh, global cooling taken ah. to the ultimate extreme, which was really good but sadly unfinished, which, oh. is a, which is a threat that you often encounter with webcomics. We should do a webcomic podcast someday. But um, yes, so this is an amazing book. Absolutely. I think it's available digitally. On, yeah, uh, should. Dark Horse. Um, read it. It's fantastic. fantastic. In, in a lot of ways, like I, I'm not the sort of conspiracy nut that would say you know she inspired all of the you know the positive female characters that are coming out now. But you can certainly make an argument that she's predicting here. She's the, the torchbearer. Yeah, you know, I mean, the fact superhero girl's a redhead. When you look at her after having read Cameron Stewart's Batgirl, it's very easy to see where like where the winds are blowing, right? It's easy to see how one can inspire the other. I and I, and there were positive female characters before Superhero Girl in the same. But it's vein. a very it's a different. Like I said earlier about Squirrel Girl, it's a different type. Yeah, because uh, women superheroes, like say at the two early two thousands, right? It was about well, we they have to be a bit rougher on edge because we had all those you know dozens of years of bad. Superhero representations of women. Yes. So you had to do the Gail Simone thing of they're tough and they're and they're badass and they're tough. Yeah. And nowadays, you're like, no, we can embrace the girly parts of mm-hmm. superhero girl, but keep them being positive superheroes. Yeah, and like, and they are allowed also to fail. Yeah. You know, in the sense that, like, I can understand the notion that you would want to be careful not to show female superheroes as incompetent, because that's playing into the stereotype. But on the other hand, you know, the fact that Superhero Girl is so bad at job interviews <laughs> and she keeps forgetting to take her mask off really humanizes her. Like, it makes her a much more sympathetic character than, I think, uh, a sort of perfect paragon. If she had been Kevin, this would have been a letdown. Yeah. But it works because she's flawed. I absolutely adore it. Yeah, so we finished with a high recommendation, which is Five thumbs good. up. So we'll see you all in two weeks' time. Yeah. And... Till next time, I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. And from the Smorgasbord, bon appetit.